So we're near to Christmas. Hallelujah. You know, the whole thing of the virgin birth of Jesus, the incarnation, it's really amazing. It's a solid doctrine. It's central to Christianity. It's so much connects to our own lives. But you know that it's really only Matthew and Luke that give us much information on the virgin birth, the whole story of the virgin birth. If it wasn't for Matthew and Luke, we wouldn't know about the fact that uh, Jesus was born by the Father or of the Father through the Virgin Mary. We wouldn't know that. But all the other writers knew about it, and there's veiled references to it. And so, but they all believed that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Is that okay? And it's one of the things that John says in his doctrine because, you know, Matthew and Luke more or less see the glory of God in Christ's birth, whereas John sees it much more on, on his resurrection, you know, his death, burial, and his resurrection on the cross. And so John talks about it in 1 John chapter 4. He says, don't believe every spirit, but test every spirit. And, you know, that's not some thing. What he says is listen to their doctrine. That's how you test the spirit. And he says, because, you know, the spirit of the Antichrist is the one who denies that Christ came in the flesh. And Christ is the anointed one, the prophesied Messiah, and he came in the flesh. So it's all through scripture. But now as regards Christmas Day, you know, we're not superstitious about the date. Because we don't know actually when Jesus was born. But the one thing that we do know from Scripture, he was born. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Fully God and fully man. So they can pick any day. Is that okay? We could have had Christmas in the middle of June, July. I would celebrate it exactly like I'm celebrating it now. I don't attach any significance to the day, the 25th of December. But I do attach a lot of significance to the fact that Christ was born. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Amen. I love what Charles Haddon Spurgeon, they called him the Prince of Preachers. I love what he said. Now listen to this. It's a little bit of old-fashioned English, but listen to this. Since it is lawful and even laudable, in other words, praiseworthy, to meditate upon the incarnation of the Lord upon any day in the year, it cannot be in the power of another man's superstition to render our meditation improper for this day. Regarding not the day, let us nevertheless give thanks for the gift of the dear son. And so it's really interesting. So how many of you know that uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Over the centuries, many, 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 many people were born in, around, and near Bethlehem. But there was something else that was born in Bethlehem and it's something that I want to just talk about a little bit this morning. The very first evangelist who announced the gospel in the New Testament was not a man. It was an angel. Yes. Very first evangelist. The very first preacher of the gospel was the nameless angel that appeared to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. So we're going to just look at two verses, and Steve, we'll leave them up, and if I go to another verse, we'll go to that verse, and we'll go back to Luke chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. And there were shepherds in the field watching over their flocks. So Luke chapter 2, verses 10 to 12, but the angel said to them, so now this is the first evangelist, okay? The first evangelist said, for behold... I bring you good tidings 
of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. These are powerful verses. You know, everything in the Bible that the Holy Spirit inspired, He did it with such intent, with such careful selection, not only of the words, but of the person He would use to give that, utter those words and then record those words. It's really powerful. And so here's the gospel. And let me touch on it, because the first thing that happened, if we back up to verse 9 in Luke chapter 2, it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to them. Now, everybody say angel of the Lord. So most of you are not chewing chewing gum, so I'm going to get you to repeat this to stay awake. All right. So the angel of the Lord. You know, many times in the Bible when it spoke of the angel of the Lord, it wasn't only referring to the fact that it's the Lord's angel, but there were times, and then the typing would be in bold, but when the angel of the Lord appeared, it would be an angel who almost was the embodiment of Christ. It was almost like a pre-Christ appearance. But even if it wasn't, you know, it was an awesome sight and something that the Jews would not only be in reverence about, but there was an element of fear, of just absolute dread. Not only reverential respect, but an absolute dread. But listen, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Isn't it amazing? Here come the shepherds, and here's the angel, and he appears. And the glory of God is so brilliant, it just lights up the whole area, like you see in all the paintings and the pictures. And they didn't go, woo-hoo, hallelujah, we've seen an angel. No, no, they were terrified. More often than not, like John in the book of Revelations, they would fall face on the ground, shut their eyes, and they would go like, oh God, you know, I don't want to see this. So part of it was because they believed that if they saw God, Or even they saw an appearance of the Lord, even if it was in the person of his angel, they were too sinful to look on such holiness. And so in their minds is, we're going to die. Amen? And so there was that thing in them, this that reverence, because God said it all over. You know, the Old Testament, I'm of pure eyes and to behold evil. Even to Moses, he said, you can't, you can't see my face. You won't live if you see my face. Simple things. Like when Samson's mom and dad, the angel appeared and stood on the rock, above the rock. And they also thought, okay, that's it. We're finished. We're dead. And here the angel comes, this angel of the Lord, and uh, they're terrified. And the first words he says to them is, fear not. I want you to understand that the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ because he's saying this at the birth, the impending birth, well, Jesus had already been born, and he was in Bethlehem, that the beginning of the gospel is no fear. No fear. Come on, say it to the person next to you, no fear. Come on, there's a t-shirt that's okay. No fear. Is that all right? And so the first thing the angel says is, okay, it's okay. You can see us. You're not going to die. 
And that sets the beginning of the gospel, the New Testament period, that men will be able to behold the divine God and not die, but live. So fear was eradicated in the gospel, fear. Because how many of you know that fear is a given human emotion and it's to extricate us from a situation or to give us the impetus, the adrenaline to deal with a scary situation. And so, but the Bible nowhere talks about not fearing with that sense of fear. Because if there's danger, you get a fright, there's a release of adrenaline, extricate or defend or whatever. Amen? But it's when that emotion is wrongly expressed, when that emotion becomes an enemy, when that emotion is no longer the friend that it was created to be, when it takes over your life and something else happens. So the very first illegitimate expression of fear in the Bible was Adam and Eve after they'd sinned. And God came looking for them and he asked them why they were hiding. And they said, we were naked and ashamed and we were afraid. We were afraid. We were scared. So we hid. So now the angel comes and he goes, hey, no fear. You don't have to run from God anymore. You don't have to hide away anymore. Amen. God came to deal with that root thing of fear. John says in 1 John chapter 4, he says, because fear has to do with judgment. But the person that is perfected in love, in other words, that understands the love that Christ has for us and has responded in love to him and his heart is educated as far as salvation is concerned, that love in his heart for God casts out all fear. Because fear has to do with judgment. Simple verses in the Bible, simple verses with deep implications. The angel comes and says, fear not. And I'm almost sure that a sense of peace flooded their beings. And they could continue looking at the supernatural spectacle that was unfolding. Because after that, a choir of angels appeared and began to sing glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth, peace to all men on whom his favor rests. Isn't this awesome? And so he says, fear not. So fear was the first negative emotion. The fear of seeing God and not living. Isn't it amazing? And I've said it before, and I said it just recently, that God said to Moses, when Moses said, God, I want to see your glory. And he said, no, you can't. He says, you can see it as I go past you. You can almost see the backside of the glory. You can almost see it, you know, from a rear aspect, but you can't look at it full on because you shall not live. And that was the epitome of the law. That was what the law was all about. There was an element of glory, fading, passing away, going to end. But there's another glory that was to come after the sufferings of Christ. The glory was to be revealed. And so Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory. Listen to this. Displayed in the face of Christ. 
Isn't it amazing? You know, sometimes in the Bible, the presence of God talks about the face of God. In other words, to be in the presence of God is to be in front of His face. And so what Paul here is saying, that the glory that we have now of God, we can perfectly see as we look into the face of Christ. This is something Moses couldn't do. Moses had to go behind God. We can come around from behind God now, and we can stand in a face-to-face relationship with Him. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it says we can look at Him with unveiled faces. In other words, we can have a face-to-face with God, and as we're facing Him, we are being transformed with ever-increasing degrees from one level, one degree of glory to another. And he says this, with ever-increasing glory. Isn't that amazing? So the first thing is, we are now able to see God. God wants us in a relationship with Him. So when the angel said, fear not, he was announcing that everything was about to change. Isn't that amazing? Amen. And the second thing that he eradicated in that statement or declared that would be eradicated would be the fear of death. The fear of death. Paul says this in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. He said, Since the children are flesh and blood, he too shared in the humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. This one I'm reading in the NIV. He says, That is the devil. Come and read it again. Are you all listening? Since the children have flesh and blood, He too shared in their humanity. There's an indication of the virgin birth by the Apostle Paul. Is that right? So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. And that's why when he rose, he said, okay, here it is. I have the keys of death and hell. Amen. He broke the power of him who held the power of death. I mean, we could just read that a few more, four more times, amen? He broke the power of him who holds the power of death. He had the power. That power was the keys, the authority. That's why he went and took the key, and he said, I've got the keys. In other words, he was saying, death has no more power. It has no more authority over your life. Is that okay? I think this is marvelous. Now listen to this. That is the devil. Verse 15, he says, And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. There's no time to go into it all. But the incredible thing was, is that if we look at the Old Testament law, it was the law, the law of sin and death. The whole reason the law came, or part of the reason that the law came, because death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. But when the time when Moses came and introduced the law, death received a new power and it received a new definition. But not only that, 
something was introduced in the law that would begin to put death in check and await the time of Christ when he would destroy the one who held the power of death. So the law came and defined sin. So before there was a law, sin was not recognized or known, although it was there. Everybody with me? If you are driving down a road and there's no board that says 80 on it with a red circle around and you do 120, a policeman cannot stop you because there's no law governing the speed of, on that road. You understand what I'm saying? The moment you introduce a law and you contravene it, there is a sin, a transgression. So when the law came, it made sin exceedingly sinful because, number one, it defined sin and said, okay, this is sin. The second thing is, Paul says, the amazing thing is that when the law came, there was that principle of sin and rebellion in me that when I saw the law, then sin decided, oh, oh, is that so? Thou shalt not covet. And then Paul says it, you can read it in Romans chapter 7. He says that now suddenly I discover all kinds of covetousness in me. Because the law of sin in my members goes, really? You know? And then it began to covet. He said, I didn't covet before until I saw the law. Don't covet. Now I'm coveting. And so he said, but all of this was for a purpose. It was to define sin. And not only that, but to show us that we needed a savior. But anyway, but the consequence of sin is death. Amen? So he says in Romans chapter 5, so sin is a king because it reigns by death and in death. It will rule and reign you. And at the end of its reign, it will introduce you to death and hell. Are you all with me? And so when it says... Fear not, he's talking also about the fact that the law of sin and death is about to be replaced with the law of the spirit of life in one Christ Jesus. And grace will reign and lead us to eternal life. Amen? How many of you know, you, you know, it's quite amazing you get a whole sermon out of fear not. It's really amazing, isn't it? Fear not. So look at the person next to you and say, no fear. So fear not. All right. So very quickly, the gospel is the removal of unhealthy, misdirected fear, and it is replaced with some other emotion that is just far greater than a misinformed fear. Are you all ready? And so here it is. The angel says, so we're going back to Luke chapter 2. So the angel says, fear not because... Behold, I bring you good tidings of what? Not little joy. Of what? Great joy. And so what the angel was saying is that fear, that tyranny of fear that's in you now is going to be replaced with something that's greater and it's going to be a great joy. So he said, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Every word is emphatic, as if to show the gospel above all things. And so as far as this first evangelist, this angelic evangelist is concerned, the outstanding preeminent emotion concerning the gospel and the birth of Jesus is capital J, capital O, capital Y, 
joy. Amen. Amen. It's one of my favorite choruses still. One day we'll sing it. Let there be joy. We need to have joy in the Holy Ghost. Isn't that right? And so it was joy. It was joy. And for several reasons, the angel was saying, listen, it's a message. It's good tidings. The message that I'm bringing you is one of great, great joy. I'm almost convinced that the peace that overwhelmed the shepherds once the angel had said, fear not, was suddenly replaced with this effervescent, bubbling up, contagious joy. My other theory is this, that on the day of Pentecost, when the disciples and the whole group, the 120, got baptized in the Holy Spirit, and people thought they were drunk, is because a great element of their drunkenness was joy. I am convinced they had tears streaming down their face, and in between the giggling and the raucous laughter, they were still speaking in tongues because they got the new wine, and it was much nicer than the old. Amen? So what did they get? They got the joy of the Holy Ghost. So great joy, great joy. It's very interesting. I mean, and it's a whole study on its own. But the very first expression of love that comes out of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 is love, then it is, and then it is peace. The predominant thing is really incredible that Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and he talks about the evidence of us being alive, made alive in the Spirit is, the first thing is, and this is the main description, is that we'll be a people of love. But the first expression of that love will be joy. Amen? I like what one great theologian said. He said, the fruit of the Spirit is love. He says, joy is love with its dancing shoes on. Peace is love at rest. And then we went on to describe all of them. Come on, where's the joy? Amen? Despite the economy, despite load shedding, despite whatever, there should be something solid, something foundational, something indescribable, unfathomable, but really tangible in our lives, and that should be the joy of the Holy Ghost. Amen? So it'll be great joy. It's really interesting. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 14, verse 7. Listen to what Paul says. He says, I want you to understand the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom that is now is not about food and drink. It's not about the way you dress up for the rituals and the sacrifices. It's not about in ceremonial eating and drinking that all pertain to the law. He says, but no, no, no. He says, now the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, And joy in the Holy Ghost. Amen. In other words, once I understand that I have been declared righteous because of the sacrifice of Jesus, the very first emotions that should flood out of that, number one, is peace, knowing I'm at peace with God. I am reconciled to Him and He to me. Woo! Amen. Peace follows righteousness. And then immediately the peace hits you. You should go like, oh my goodness.
goodness. God is not against me. He's for me. I'm one with him. And that should release the second one, which is... Okay, I thought you'd shout it louder. The preaching's getting good now. It's joy in the Holy Ghost. Amen? And it's something that is by the Spirit. It's not manufactured. It's not put on. It's something that's real, that springs from the inside where Christ dwells. It's deep down, and it just comes out and floods out. Peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? And so he says, I'm bringing you, he said, uh, a message of great joy. Great joy. When the angels began to sing, they sang, Glory to God in the highest. So this joy continues as long as we understand His glory. And that we now have the glory and are being transformed with ever-increasing continuity into His image and His likeness. Amen? Amen? As long as there is glory to God in the highest, there is joy in the hearts of His people. So out of that, we understand that it is a pure and a holy joy. It's not the joy the world gives. It's, to put it in the words of a song, it's a, it's a joy unspeakable and full of glory. There's something about holy laughter. There's something about that joy when the Spirit of God comes upon you and there's a revelation of something, some aspect of the Lord or whatever, and you are liberated. And the joy of the Lord just begins to well up inside of you. There's something about it that is so pure and so holy. One of the reasons why it's pure is because it's not conditional. It's greater than happiness. It's not transient. It's exactly the same when Jesus said, Listen, disciples, I give you peace. Peace not like the world gives you, but my, my very own peace. The peace that is resident inside me, the peace that is supernatural, the peace that surpasses all understanding, that peace is what I give you. Now listen, church, it's the same. The joy originates the same place. It's a heavenly, divine joy. Amen? It defies logic sometimes. Amen? And I remember Richard Roberts, the late R. Roberts' son, I've mentioned this before, but there's new people here that you've not heard this story before. When Richard Roberts took over R. Roberts University, they were in debt by $40 million. So now he's the president of the university. He knows this is a work of God. It's a planting of God. It's a vision that God gave R. Roberts. It's touched the world. It's transformed the world. Great men and women of God have come out of that institution it's blessed America, it's blessed the world. But now he's sitting here as the chairman, as the dean, as the CEO of R. Roberts University. And he's sitting down and he's looking at the financials. And we are $40 million in debt. And he looks and he goes, oh God, what am I going to do about this? And suddenly in the center of his belly, it was as if he had drunk a big glass of Eno's. It started to bubble. And the next thing he knew, he had his hands in the air, laughing raucously. 
until he couldn't sit on his chair anymore. Fell off the chair with the joy of the Lord. And supernaturally, in a short space of time, $40 million was taken care of. You see, you know, people can laugh like that when they're drunk, but it's not a pure laughter. But you can laugh like that when you're drunk in the Holy Ghost. It's a righteous, holy, it's pure, because it comes from your spirit, but it has its origins in Him. Because the one who sits in heaven, who's throned in heaven, looks at our enemies and looks at everything, all the goings on. And the Bible tells us that he scorns, he laughs at them to deride them. Amen? And there are people who've got the joy of the Lord and started to laugh when there were unbelievable circumstances in front of them. And God transforms all of it. Amen? So it's good tidings of a great joy. But anyway, we, need to, we just need to carry on a little bit. So it's a pure and holy joy. I like what Charles Haddon Spurgeon says. He says, The joy which the gospel brings is not borrowed, but it blooms in its own garden. I mean, come on, that's a good one, isn't it? So the joy which the gospel brings is not borrowed, but it blooms in its own garden. It's the joy that comes from the gospel, from being a believer, from being united with Christ. All right, so why is this joy so pure and so holy and, and all of that? Because number one, all of the promises of the Old Testament, all the promises to our fathers in the faith of hope and comfort for believers then and believers in the future was now fulfilled in the coming of Christ. Amen? And so God proved true to his word and faithful once again. So to put it in the words of Psalm 102, the set time to favor Zion has now come. Amen? And I want to tell you that the time of his favor has not ceased. That's why the angels, when they say, glory to God in the highest heaven on earth, peace to all men on whom his favor rests. On whom? On whom his favor rests. Rest. So come on, his favor is resting on you. Is that okay? Come on, his favor rests on you. I mean, isn't that good news? I think that's fantastic news. So listen to what the angel says in verse 11. Fear not for God to bring you good. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. A Savior. We all needed a Savior. We all still need a Savior. <laughs> because He's still saving us from our old nature. <laughs> Is that okay? I mean, He's still saving me from John. Because this John left to his own devices. <laughs> Won't be the John that Jesus is, you know, wanting to transform. I mean, salvation is by faith from beginning to end, from first to last. And all the in-between. Come on. He's still saving us. We still, but okay, now for the, just for the sake of time, this Savior in, who was born in the city of David is Christ. Is Christ the anointed one? He came, and in his one being, he summed up the three main anointings that we see in the Old Testament. Prophet, priest, and king. And so this Savior 
his prophet because he preached the gospel with life and message like no other. He's priest because he presented the most perfect sacrifice so that we can be redeemed. He's the anointed Messiah because as priest, he still ever lives to intercede for us. Amen? Making sure that we continue to be saved. Until not only my spirit is saved, but my mind is so renewed and transformed that I literally do have the mind of Christ. And when that happens, something will transpire in my physical being and even my body will be redeemed. Amen? Amen? Not only is he prophet, not only is he priest, but he's king. Yes. Is that all right? Yes. We still rules and reigns. I'm so glad that I'm in his kingdom, in the kingdom of grace. So we reign in this life by one Christ Jesus, Paul says. Hallelujah. But unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ, but not only that, which is Lord. And the Greek word there is kurios, and that word kurios, if you look at it and do a study on it, it's very similar to Yahweh, and uh, Yahweh is Jehovah. And so there's a lot of people that say, no, 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 you know, you need to say the name of Yahweh, or, you know, Jehovah, or Yeshua, or something like that. You know that the compound names, the covenant names, nation names of God, our, our Savior, our Righteousness, you know, our shepherd, our healer, Jehovah Rahe, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Mkadesh, Jehovah Tzidkenu, Jehovah, all the Jehovahs in the New Testament is summed up in one name, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Isn't that right? Yeah. So don't let these people who've got a Jewish band come to you and say, when you pray, you need to say, Yeshua, Messiah. I'm not Jewish. You can study Hebrew, but you're not Jewish. Is that okay? Yeah. If you're Afrikaans, it's the Yira Jesus. Yeah. If you're English, it's Jesus. Yeah. If you're Shangan, it's Yesu. Or if you're in Debele. I mean, it doesn't matter what language. He knows his name. Yes. How is it that a man with PTSD that is not a believer, not even agnostic, is not even... You know, atheist, he's just nothing. And he's an atheist, and he hears the story from someone high up in the Illuminati, for goodness sake. There's only God and the devil, light and darkness. And here he's struggling with PTSD. He's off his head, lost several wives. And then he goes outside and goes, in the night sky, lifts up and he says, Are you there? I want you to know, I'm on your side. <laughs> you know, and the next, I mean, he's born again. He didn't say Yeshua Messiah. He didn't even say the name of Jesus. I mean, do you think he doesn't know who you're talking to? No, when I was younger, you'd have to, I come to you, Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ Almighty, you know? Almighty God. I don't know what about all the other names. But anyway, if you don't pray it like that, your prayers are not going to be answered. And yes, a Catholic nun. And this young man comes to see this nun, and he's sitting in front of her, high on drugs, bent out of his head, addicted for many years, messed up, suicidal. And he comes to see this nun in this monastery. 
sitting down on the chair in front of her. And she's saying, please, will you pray for me? I need help. And she stands up and she says, Lord God, have mercy on this thy child. Delivered. Born again. I'm not saying we don't use the name of Jesus, but we don't get hooked up on all this other stuff. For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ and his Lord. This is why it's glad tidings of great joy. And I'm nearly, nearly done. The last thing that I want to mention, so we're going to go back to our verses, verse 12, I think it is. He tells the shepherds, and this shall be a sign unto you. Isn't it incredible, just the amazing grace of God? Did they need a sign? No. Maybe as a means of identification, I don't know. You know, the wise men followed the star, and the star settled over the manger in Bethlehem, and, or the house in Bethlehem, and they followed it there. And um, that was fulfillment of prophecy. It has great significance, the star. But did he need to give them a sign? It's an incredible grace of God is that sometimes he says, I want to help, I want to help you believe. I want to help your faith. You're going to find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. But this sounds really weird because all babes were probably wrapped in swaddling clothes. Amen? So what was different about this babe wrapped in swaddling clothes? I mean, all newborn babies, when you find them, you know, and you see them. I mean, I, I see it now with the moms and dads that have brought their kids. And when the still babies, they're all wrapped up, you know. They, they can't move their arms and legs. I look at that and I feel claustrophobic. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, they're all wrapped in swaddling clothes. You'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. What was, what was so different about that? You see, the incredible thing for me, for me, it was the ordinariness of his birth was the sign. The ordinariness. It was just like all moms and dads have little babies and they all wrap them up. Okay, the difference was he's in a manger, you know, whereas maybe other kids weren't. Yeah. But for me, it's, it says a couple of things. And the first thing is that when God said to them, this is the sign, he was not saying that there'll be any appearance of temporal earthly power. It's just going to be so ordinary, so down to earth, so accessible, so easy. You're going to find this, babe. And you know, that speaks of the whole ministry and the whole truth of the gospel is that it's so ordinary. It's just so natural. Isn't it incredible that people can just say, Jesus, just come into my heart, and he does. It's so simple. It's not hard. Is that okay? I mean, it wasn't like he was born in a palace where you've got to go and first make an appointment and then you've got people to usher you into his presence and all that kind of thing. You, you just come. Just ordinary. God just chose just ordinary shepherds. Probably were hired to look after these people's, the rich people's sheep, maybe. And they are able just to go into the presence of the king. Amazing. Second thing. There was no pomp and razzle-dazzle. <clears throat> There was no great ceremony. 
Everything about his birth, which was a sign to the disciples, was the simplicity and the accessibility of the Messiah. There was no great wealth. Jesus did become wealthy after the Magi's visit, but he was born in a place of poverty, and it demonstrated the fact that the King of glory came to be the servant of all mankind. Not to lord it over us, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. There was no superstition. There was no airy-fairy stuff. I mean, I know the painters did it, and they did it for reason. But when they walked in, there wasn't a glowing halo around Jesus' head. He was an ordinary baby. Was that okay? There was no glorious light. There wasn't gold dust settling. It was the smell of a stable or a simple little home later when the wise men came. Jesus was probably about two years old. And um, in the simplicity of the manger, amongst the animal smells or whatever, here's the Savior. Here's the Savior. Come on, church. I'm trying to make a point, and that is this, that very often we don't experience miracles because we almost have a superstitious idea of what miracles look like. Miracles are just ordinary. They happen, you know? I remember in our church back in Zim's, and the pastor was preparing us to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So he got all the uncles and aunties to give testimonies of when they received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And they were all spectacular testimonies. And the one that I remember, he got sister so-and-so, who I used to really look up to. I forget her name. But she came forward, and she was on the stage, and she's telling how... She was praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit or being prayed for. And then suddenly she gets this vision. And in this vision, Jesus appears and he's pouring out a pitcher of water. And just near her, and he's pouring out the water. And she's got her eyes closed. So she, you know, so she reaches out her hands like this. And in the vision, I mean, she's awake. She's in the church. And as in the vision, the water hits her hand. Suddenly she starts speaking in tongues. Do you know, I could not receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit for years because I was looking for Jesus with a pitcher of water. And he didn't appear, you know. And then somebody this and somebody that. So I then started to expect there's going to be gold writing on the wall or there's going to be lightning or something. You know, Elijah's chariot's going to come swooping and and Jesus is going to step out and say, yeah, receive the Holy Spirit, John. So I was waiting. So I was already speaking in tongues for years. But I didn't, this, no, this is not, this is not, this, it was too ordinary. The whole reason why Jesus came was to say, the supernatural has entered the ordinariness of your life. No superstition. No big thing. Simple. It's just simple. Sometimes we miss it. We wait for something just incredible to happen. Heaven to open, angels to descend. And look, sometimes people have those experiences, but the majority of times. So when eventually I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, I wasn't caught up into heaven. I didn't have goosebumps. I was aware of everybody around me. I was aware I could hear them all speaking in tongues. I'm waiting for this heavenly experience. Nothing. So I start speaking. Nah. That's too ordinary. It just feels like normal. 
And the pastor who prayed for me came in and said, speak, and I speak. And he goes, you received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. I'm going, nah, you liar. <laughs> and it took me a bit of time to understand, hey, the supernatural comes into the ordinary. Then the ordinary becomes extraordinary. <laughs> Amen. Amen. This is the sign. This is the sign. Come on, church. What bigger sign do we want? And so it didn't come with worldly philosophy. Great intellect. It's amazing. It's amazing. Um, a lot of people, and it was me, it was me, I'm trying to understand, how do the gifts of the Holy Spirit work? How does a word of knowledge work? How does this work? How does it, how does it actually work? Part of it is because of my teaching combination and things. How does it actually work? You know what God said to me one day? He said, John, stop trying to analyze everything. He said, you know what you like? You like somebody walking in the field and you look at a flower and you go, oh, look at this flower. Now, what is the process of osmosis to get the water out of the ground up into the flower? The Lord said to me, stop trying to figure out photosynthesis in the leaves. And it's taking the sunshine and it's turning it into chlorophyll and it's neutralizing it. And the bee comes and lands and it takes the pollen and puts on that one. And this germination is like, oh, wow. And he says, just pick the flower and enjoy the smell. That's what God said to me. And I was like, oh, my word. And then I just started operating in the gifts of the Holy Spirit because I... Quit trying to... Now, for teaching's sake, it's good to try and understand, but it wasn't with deep philosophy or anything like this. So, last verse. This is what the Apostle Paul says. I don't know which one to do. So, I'll do this one. First Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, man's philosophy, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith, your faith, should not stand or rest on the wisdom or the philosophy of men, but on the power of God. So the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. It wasn't for the whole world necessarily. It would become. But right there, and it was for the shepherds who would believe. Because he says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. All of this stuff that I've talked about is for you. In other words, the ones who hear, the ones who respond, and the ones who believe. Amen. Amen. And so I, my desire for you, my prayer for you, I, you know, I look forward to Christmas all year. <laughs> all year I look forward to Christmas. And not because of what I'm going to get, but because of the message of Christmas. Just because of everything about Christmas. I do look forward to Easter as well. But Christmas, because it, this is where it all began. And so my heart's desire, my prayer for you, is despite load shedding, <laughs> despite anything else, you shall have great joy in the Holy Ghost. So, Father, I'm praying for your people now. Maybe, Lord, this morning, I'm the angelos, the angel of the Lord, just reflecting again this great announcement, this message that came to simple shepherds. And, Father, I pray 
just your great peace, great joy on your people. Lord, a, a joy that, and a peace that's not determined by excellent conditions. It's not determined by all things being favorable. It's not determined by whether we're prosperous or not. It's not determined by whether we have electricity. It's not determined by any of those things. But Father, the peace that surpasses understanding where we cannot figure out why am I so peaceful? Where we cannot understand the reason for this fountain of joy inside of us. And it's there whether it's good or bad, whether it's night or day. And Father, I want to just speak that over your people and bless them with it through this message this morning. A joy unspeakable and full of glory. Bless them now, I pray, as we go and rest. Some will continue working in their jobs. But as we enter this season of celebration, of holidaying, of rest, of gifts, and of family, I pray that the central thing that that angel mentioned, which was the highlight of the gospel, will be their portion. Amen. Joy. Amen. In Jesus' mighty name I pray it. We all agreed and said, Amen. 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 Hallelujah. Amen. Awesome. Woo!